In Mark chapter 8, Jesus has given a stunning redefinition of what the Messiah is to his disciples. And this was completely unexpected by his disciples. Peter even tries rebuking Jesus like, hey, I think you've got the wrong idea about this. The idea of a crucified God, that was scandalous to the Jews and ridiculous to the Greeks. And it still is to most people today. But that's looking at the work of Jesus through man's perspective. In Mark chapter 9, we get to see what Jesus and his sacrificial life look like to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain where Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. In verse 3, his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And in verse 4, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter, surely in a moment of shock, he offers to build three tents for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Peter's convinced that what he's seeing is the very presence of God. We have a cloud overshadowing the mountain, just as it filled the tabernacle in Exodus and the temple of Solomon in 1 Kings 8. But then we have a voice call out and say, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly the disciples are left alone with Jesus on the mountain. Despite unassuming appearances, Jesus is the Son of God, the very embodiment of God's presence. We shouldn't look to Moses and the law that was given through him, nor should we look to the great prophets and holy men like Elijah. We listen to Jesus and Jesus alone. The cross was going to look shameful and gory, but from a heavenly perspective, Jesus is showing the purest expression of God's love, and that's something worth listening to. But after this transfiguration, Jesus comes down to a rather disappointing scene. In verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. The issue at hand is a boy possessed by a harmful spirit, and the disciples that were left behind can't seem to cast it out. Now this is strange considering what we just read in Mark chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, where they went out and preached that people should repent, and they drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. They were able to drive out demons then, so why not now? Jesus rebukes his disciples and says in verse 19, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. The unbelieving generation that Jesus is condemning, that includes his disciples. The father of the poor kid says to Jesus that many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. To which Jesus replies in verse 23, If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. I really appreciate that the Christian Standard Bible includes a question mark. Jesus is telling the man that he has the power to do anything. If you can, are you seriously asking me that? Everything is possible for Jesus. But do you believe? It's up to the man to show his faith and have the Spirit cast out. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is an important demonstration of faith for us. Faith is faith, even if it's shaky at times, and Jesus responds to it. This man had enough faith to come to Jesus, but he also understood that he wanted more faith to see the mighty works of Jesus. It should be in all of our prayers that God help us through our moments of doubt and unbelief. We can claim saving faith even when full of doubts when we still choose to hand all of it over to Jesus 
which is exactly what the disciples were not doing. Again, we ask, why weren't these disciples able to drive out the Spirit? Well, because they had given up on faith and began trusting in themselves. Imagine yourself as an apostle casting out your first demon. It's a scary experience, and people are anxiously depending on you to drive it out. How much are you praying? How aware are you of your own weakness? But maybe after the fifth, tenth, hundredth exorcism, you start feeling pretty confident. And after a while, you think, I got this. But the problem is, you don't have this. God has this. The disciples had most likely begun to rely more and more on their own power than that of God's. And this self-dependence and pride is seen further in the next few stories. In verses 33 through 37, they're all arguing about who's the greatest in heaven, to which Jesus tells them that they need to be like little children, humble and dependent on their father for success. In verses 38 through 41, John sees somebody aside from the apostles driving out demons in the name of Jesus and says, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Well, he's following Jesus. That's why he can cast out demons better than the other disciples. But John is concerned that he's not following us, meaning Jesus and the rest of the apostles. In John's mind, he's at the top with Jesus, and everybody else ought to fall in line. Jesus is redefining what the Messiah is and what power is. It's not about doing great works and commanding people with authority. It's about sacrificing that power for the sake of others. It's about serving, not being served. The disciples, they'd begun to think along man's definition of power, the ability to do anything they wanted without anybody's help or permission. But Jesus shows us that true power is only given and exercised through faith in the Father. Thank you.